Hello, and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom. I'm Kira Bazzi, co-founder, clinical director, and head of the exercise and sport program. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the life-altering relationship with movement. Netflix recently released a docu-series called Move that takes the listener through a profound journey of dance around the world, showing us how dance and movement can heal, liberate, and bring us into a deeper sense of purpose, connection, and meaning. I was introduced to this docu-series by Josh Spell, one of Opal's primary therapists and former professional ballet dancer. Josh, who is now a consulting psychotherapist for Pacific Northwest Ballet in Seattle, Washington, is also profoundly and personally connected to the power of dance, the good and the bad. He and I will be having a conversation reflecting on this docu-series, highlighting why we believe this series is worth your watch. Hi, Josh. Welcome. Thank you, Kara. I'm excited to have this conversation. I know it's something that I shared with you, and I guess I didn't really know all of the layers that were present. And so, yeah, I think there's so much richness to unpack. Yeah, let's let's start for the listeners. Let's start with some context to help you get a sense for the landscape of this series. Okay, so first of all, there were five episodes that took place in five different countries and cultures around the world. Episode one took place in multiple cities in the US. Two featured a teacher in a dance company in Israel. Episode three told us of a story of a dancer in Spain. Episode four profiled a female dancer in Jamaica. And lastly, episode five profiled an Indian dancer who was raised in the UK. And one thing that was striking is that this docu-series had absolutely nothing to do with using movement to change one's body shape or lose weight. Instead, it was a compelling and authentic storytelling of dance through the context of a much bigger life and death themes of race relations, breaking gender norms, shifting away from perfectionism, embodiment, gender roles, family dynamics, breaking free from oppression, sexual expression, healing from mental health, courage to break free from parental expectations and more. A lot. <laughs> so Josh and I are going to go have a conversation about each of the episodes and just take you through our experience of watching these episodes and what we thought were kind of significant themes to be taking away and hopefully turn you on to watching this series yourself. So Josh, let's let's just get going and start with episode one. So yeah. what, what was impactful to you in episode one? Well, I think first of all, who knew that dance could be just so multi-dimensional and express and share all of these different aspects um, that weren't just about the body or about the body sort of being this art piece mm -hmm. kind of just to look at. So I think that really starting with that first episode about really the, the joking and the popping, right? And just using sort of these different styles of movement, but that they could also be so graceful and they could also sort of just connect a community and build a sense of pride. And I think open up these new conversations that maybe would not have been able to happen if it weren't for this outlet. Mm -hmm. 
I, I'm imagining a lot of listeners don't know what juking and popping are. Can you can you tell people what that is? Yeah, and you know, I, in terms of my experience with dance, I don't really know much about it. But you know, if you think about popping, it literally is that image of like poses and movement and like stopping in these really sort of robotic shapes. And again, I think that there's this misconception that, oh yeah, anybody can do that, right? Like that's street dance. And again, I think that's where we have to look at our bias around, there is so much training that really goes into kind of these forms of break dance or yeah, the popping and locking, the jukin with like actually being up on your toes in sneakers and just so much control and so much technique and muscular sort of strength. So that was just super cool to see. Mm -hmm. And I think I noticed sort of this parallel with ballet because in it, I don't know if you remember, but there was sort of that training at a ballet school. I think it was in Memphis. Yeah, I believe I think I think you're right. One of the so it featured two dancers, John Boogs and Little Buck, and mm -hmm. one of them decided to go get the classical ballet training, correct? Yeah, Is it that, was Little yeah. Buck. Little yeah. Buck and I remember him saying, like, I'm not wearing tights though. And, mm -hmm. you know, there was this idea of showing the body so you know, you could again kind of work this instrument, but he was like, I'm not doing that. And that was really a cultural position to take because it was almost this idea, I remember him saying, there's a, a certain aesthetic that I have to keep and not meaning like shaping the body or what the body looks like, but in terms of being a black man, right? There were all of these sort of gender stereotypes that were sort of being challenged or would have been challenged, assumptions would have been made if he would have worn something like tights. So it was not worth kind of taking that risk because he was able to express himself. And what he says and he takes away is that he learned how to dance on his toes and do all of these really cool moves that sort of are informed by this classical ballet training. Yeah, I remember one of either, I can't remember if it was John or Lil Buck that talked about saying that street dance is a fine art and, and challenging, like you said, that bias around what people maybe are assuming about what street dance is. And then challenging, like you said, gender stereotypes, but also a huge part of that first episode was race and, and looking at these were both black men in the United States. And so, and they both came from low socioeconomic status and just difficult upbringings and sort of their journey around kind of using, using dance to find places of power and, and voice for doing political work, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think just seeing and witnessing their families, their community, I think there's an episode or an interview with one of the dancer's moms, right? And kind of just seeing that sense of pride and how that was representative of being able to share some of the struggles growing up and to heal deep wounds. I think that they mentioned a lot, right? Using dance as this expression and looking at the roots of slavery and looking at oppression and really being able to open that up 
and to have this different perspective and this different witnessing that again can come from having a different perspective and open up a new conversation. And that's what I think a lot of their pieces really did when they were performing in LA. Right. Yeah, they they kind of took us through this journey of both of the men ending up in LA, finding each other, having a similar kind of passion and purpose around what they wanted, how they wanted to use their dance as political action. And then they opened up a dance company, right, together in LA. And one of the things that I wrote this down when I was taking notes when I was watching the show of what they started, they kind of started with this almost cheer with their dance company. And that was, they said, it was kind of a call. What are they, like a call? They started with the question, what are we doing? And they say, waking people up. How do we do it? By changing the standards. What's our why? Opening eyes. And I just thought that was such a cool way of centering why they're doing what they're doing and keeping in alignment with the political work of their dance and using it as a a form of communication to the world, a really powerful communication. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like that mantra, really connecting all of their experiences and then being able to unite and make that into this one powerful voice to continue sharing stories and almost that poetry that that mantra sounds like. Right. Yeah, very, very cool. And again, here we are talking about uh, talking about this, but as a listener, we would highly suggest you watching these episodes because there is something so much more visceral about, about watching them and watching their dance and watching their form of communication that's not verbal, that really gives the sense of the power of this movement and, and the way that this has transformed their lives in a very profound, and this would be an example, kind of a life or death sort of way of, of where they came from and then, and where, where they went with, where dance took them. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Really cool. Okay. Well, let's, let's move on to the second episode. Do you want to share a little bit about what that episode profiled? Cause I know this one, when we talked earlier, had, had a lot of effect on you personally. Yes. So this takes place in Tel Aviv. And Ohad Naharan is a dancer who has danced for almost all of his life. And I think at the beginning of it, he really talks about he can't imagine not having dance in some form kind of with him. And I think that really is a theme of this, just in terms of breaking stereotypes and rules related with ageism, right? And yeah, just sort of the breaking down of the body and how that can really be seen as beautiful, as an opportunity to continue going. And so this Gaga method is what he formed. It's a technique. And he talked about having a language to be able to communicate with his own dancers. And that's why he came up with Gaga. And do you remember why he used the word, why he picked Gaga? Actually, that's not coming to me. Remind me. Yeah. Oh, I guess it's a pre-verbal. Yeah, because it's a pre-verbal word. Yeah. So it's it's the baby talk. Yeah. And so I don't know if that is on purpose, but then thinking about what I was just saying about, you know, breaking down these barriers with ageism. And so I think it's quite ironic anyway, that that's the name of it. But 
so much more to, to what the Gaga technique was. And I think that I wrote down that it meant strengthening your engine and being able to befriend your body and really have this intimate connection. So anyway, there's, there's so much more there. Where should we go, Kara? I know. I, I really appreciated this episode because I think it is a, a large part of shifting away from perfectionism, staying connected to the body. And like Josh said, with ageism, uh, one of the scenes that was the most touching to me is that he got involved in his mom's retirement community and had all of them doing Gaga. And to watch this circle of folks in their 70s and 80s still moving their body and having joy in moving their body. And it was more about connecting and not pushing into places of physical discomfort, but being able to embrace something that feels good in one's body throughout the lifetime. So I thought that was so sweet and the joy that it brought his mom and her friends of doing this kind of movement in community in a way that's honoring to the body kind to the body, gentle with the body, and not to tear it down um, and, and witnessing it together and, and letting loose. I was struck by how watching him with different groups of people do the Gaga method, you know, I would think of so many people having embarrassment or potentially shame in looking silly or, or stupid. And yet that is, I think he models the importance of letting go and really just embodying your, yourself in a way in, in front of other people to release some of those anxieties about, about how we look in front of each other. And, and doing it in community, it, it was really powerful to see that people not hold any kind of shame around that. I don't know what, how you felt seeing that. Yeah, there was such this deep appreciation, almost for the intuition, for the wisdom of our bodies. And I appreciate you mentioning kind of it being shared with different groups because it's the technique can really work in all mm -hmm. different settings. And so like we saw the retirement community and I just loved Sophia, I think was his mom's name and she was 90. Yeah. And just like, yeah, that joy, that happiness. But I, I really remember the touch and they were using touch on their bodies. And I think that's something that I do in some of my experiential work as well as being able kind of just to tap back in literally. And I think that that showcases and highlights this natural sort of, yeah, just innateness that our bodies do hold. And there's almost this sense of letting go and really finding curiosity. And it makes me think about like self-inquiry in a way. And a lot of it was the discovery of like, before even going into more of the formal choreography, I would say, there's this whole period of just discovery. And I think mm -hmm. that's the part that was really universal, just with all groups and yeah, like dancers of all ages and techniques and body sizes. And yeah, just being able to, to share that together, like you said, in community. And then they, and then he took it a step further to see how helpful it was with dancers that he, remember he brought that into the public 
and had quote unquote non-dancers come and do the Gaga method with him. And I remember that part on, in the show where he was, you know, him and his, uh, another dancer were on stage just sort of sh showing how to do, how, how one might do the Gaga method. And then just hundreds of people, obviously this wasn't during COVID, but hundreds of people doing the Gaga method that weren't dancers. So there's an accessibility there that also felt really lovely in terms of that this is, and anyone can access this. I also wrote down one of the things he said that I, I really appreciated. He said, everything can be brought to the studio, our madness, our neuroses, our sadness, our frustration, like all humanity can be brought into the studio. And he said, even to unpack the treasures within us. Mm. So just such an appreciation of what are the, our own body's wisdom, which of course is so aligned with the work that we do at Opal of really yeah. trusting our body's wisdom for it to speak, you know, to get out of our heads, which so many of us are in our heads and really listen and, and be and, and have a practice to be attuned to our body in that way was quite powerful. Yeah, it makes me think of a lot of our clients, or just a lot of individuals that do have that perfectionistic tendency because of the society that we live in or conditioning. And so really being able to just stop and listen to the body before telling it what to do. And I just remember him saying pleasure and like yeah. how this experience could be so pleasurable. And I don't know, it makes me think like, pleasure and being able to experience that, is that what allows sort of this longevity in our body, right? Yes. And being able to just befriend and have it as our companion, our lifelong companion. Yeah. I mean, what a, even you, us talking about this, thinking back to watching that, there's such a um, freedom that, I feel it and even thinking about that and a relaxation. I actually remember him saying happy relaxes us. And I think the thing about Gaga that's also nice is that it, it takes it away from, you don't have to be, again, a dancer. It doesn't have to be that you have to fit into a particular box in order to do this, that it is more just about inhabiting our body that all of us can do regardless of our limitations, our skills, our competencies. So I just think again, that, I think he even said too, like, if you're sick, if you're handicapped, if you're in a wheelchair, you still can do this. You still can use the parts that are able to move and tap into your, into your body's pleasure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really think that one was really profound, a profound episode for those of us that, that struggle with that perfectionism or trying to be great at something. <laughs> right. Yes. Okay. Let's move on to episode three. Now this one was quite different <laughs> of what it was showing. Do you want to start with kind of what this one was about? Yeah, so this one takes place in Spain and it follows this traditional or was traditional in the sense of flamenco style of dancing, a man that really kind of flipped flamenco on its head, <laughs> turned it upside mm -hmm. down. And I think this really speaks to the tradition and the culture because, you know, flamenco originally or originated in Seville. And so there are a lot of traditions and cultural expressions, gender norms, just again, like 
a certain way of being. And I think what was so important in this episode was challenging tradition in order to make space for new tradition. And it was really like the style of flamenco dancing was being learned, but then unlearned by the audience to be able to appreciate what Israel brought. And, that and also, Israel, Israel is the name of the, the dancer. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Kara. Yeah. yeah. So following Israel and his family and his parents really did have a difficult time seeing him sort of stretch the limits and even break down some of those walls or expectations. Yeah, this was, there was a lot around family and family relationships and him having to kind of navigate what would be authentic to him and what his preferences would be, um, knowing that there would have a profound negative impact on his family. And that was really powerful that he was you know, just willing to do what he believed would bring him life, even though this could be a major source of conflict and, and potentially even cut off from his family. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was, that was, it was hard to watch the uh, the reaction from his parents, but at the same time, it, it felt so, I think there was something so also important there in, in that how relatable that can be around anything that we might be choosing for ourselves that goes against really important people in our lives, what they want for us, right? And he chose to do that. So we got to see like a really intimate view of that. Right, and just so much grief associated with allowing something new to appear. And yes, there was so much grief with family, but also with his country. And he had to go away outside outside of Spain, Spain, right? (laughs) To perform. And it was not until he came back that there was this openness or this curiosity that led to a mutual respect from Spain. So that was really cool to see as well. And so I think the other piece of it though is the self-discovery, right? Mm -hmm. And like the self-exploration that he was going through while there was so much turmoil externally, right? From Mm -hmm. parents, from like shirking these traditions. Yeah, they kind of talked about, well, it was at the end, they, so he found this success in these other countries, and then there was more openness from Spain. And so at the very end, he got to perform in La Plaza de Toros, which is, you know, the the, the major bullfighting arena that they've never had a dancer perform in. So it was this incredible, like huge honor for him to be able to dance in that arena as this big symbol um, really of what they would, what he called kind of the return of the prodigal son. Like he got to be, he got to be accepted back into the country and by his parents in this grand gesture. And it was, you know, it, it was, it was quite a moving moment to watch him perform and be so connected authentically to himself as he's performing in this space while, while his country is embracing him finally. Right. And you use the word connection, but I also remember him being barefoot. And so like literally connecting with the earth, connecting mm. with his home country in this new way. But that's not without some of the criticism that he got with this idea that he's gone too far. He's taken flamenco 
out of its roots and out of its like heritage and pushed it too far. And that's not okay. So it was almost like this disrespect. But I think that was also so honorable is breaking the rules sort of broke down some of the, the gender norms, right? Mm -hmm. And that gender expression. So I think that was a real highlight, being able to see that it's not just about being a man or a woman, it was more about the body and what the mm -hmm. body is able to express and do. And he played with that. And I think that's where a lot of the discomfort came because again, I wanna acknowledge sort of the, the culture of Spain and respect sort of that piece around sort of there's a place for men and women, yet this power of dance sort of seemed to break down some of those rules. Right. And I think for those that were following him, we're able to see and acknowledge that this, this is kind of the path in some ways needed to really make a, a more profound shift in, in culture that he was willing to sacrifice a lot to be a part of that potential change. Right. Yeah. Okay. And finding, finding his own identity and own authenticity, I think that, yes, it did sort of open up that ability and that space for this larger global experience. Yeah. All right, let's move to episode four. This was probably my favorite episode. <laughs> I could start us. It it was highlighting um, a woman named Kimiko, who is a dancer in Kingston, Jamaica. And she participated in what's called Dance Hall, which is a Jamaican popular music that takes in reggae and hip hop and R&B style dancing. They talk about dance hall being an expression of revolution and resistance. And so this episode was really highlighting her as empowered female dancer in a black body and, and really explores really important themes again around gender and gender norms, sexuality. And I really appreciated that, especially that component around what it is like to embody sexual expression for oneself and not for the pleasure of other people or for the pleasure of the opposite gender. So I just, I, I love this episode. What, what did you think of this one? Yeah, again, I think that it was really looking through a different lens and there are so many stereotypes that I felt like were really broken through, broken down in this episode, right? With sexuality, with being this strong, empowered Black woman, and really sort of taking, again, like the tradition of oppression, of being in slavery. And I remember the mentor, she was there really talking about dance allowed individuals to reconnect with their past as kings and queens and kept that really alive because there was nowhere to do it. And so it was often in the night, in the street, yeah, through dance, and then it evolved into dance hall. But also, I think what I really connected with in, in Kimiko was this perseverance, was this strength of being able to express herself, but also, using dance as this outlet to become an entrepreneur and 
this dancer identity allowed her confidence and a sense of pride to open doors that maybe would have remained closed if she did not have that confidence in who she was in her body to be able to just step into that because of the history of oppression, slavery uh, against women, against people of color. Yeah, this one again, you, you need to watch it as uh, to have the visceral experience of seeing Kimiko just embodied and like Josh is saying, confident in her own self and her own skin and seeing dance as this means to express her freedom. It, she talked about the need from dance hall that she's, you know, you, you get the experience of being validated, seen, expressed, appreciated. There's, it's like a spiritual space she talked about and it represents the freedom like Josh is saying of, you know, it was done on the slave plantation. And, mm -hmm. and so there's a intergenerational kind of connection to that, the freedom of the way the body could express itself. And I loved, I love that it went into the, the woman's body and talked about, yeah. they talked about it's important to move your assets and the assets being the boobs and the ass. And they were very yes. open about that. And, and like the sexier, the better and how women, they really talked about even just the physiology of it, of, uh, of you, of doing booty dancing and the control who, who, who does good at this is, is who's good at controlling their booty as the primary place of, um, of the movement of the gyrating of the hips. Yes. And yes, yes. I was oh, going to say that Kara. So good. <laughs> Primacy, of, Primacy place, of place, the buttocks. Yes. Right. Like I just loved how the the specific assets that are so feminine, right, are not used in this way for others to glorify or to sexualize. But it's more of like, this is this is me. This is mine. And this is who I am. And sort of like you you respect right. me. And just even like she she said something about there, you know, if you just move your ass in one way, that's boring. So I, there's, there's so many ways to move it. So let's keep finding new ways to move it, <laughs> which just of like an ownership of that in a way that was, again, there's, you could just feel the freedom that's being expressed in a way that's just draws you in and wants as a, an audience member or a watcher of the, the episode I found myself just wanting to be, an, I was invited into wanting to do that, to right. move my body in that way. Yeah, yeah, just that reclaiming of freedom, of movement, of like just being at home in your yeah. body. Okay, so let's get to the last episode. So this one was what, Josh? Tell us a little bit about this. So this is an Indian man his parents had fled Bangladesh when the country was fighting for its independence and it wasn't safe to be there. And so family moved to London. And that's where this dancer was born. And his mother really showed him the tradition of Bangladesh through dance. Because I remember her saying, Someone said to her, why don't you go and play soccer with him? And she said, I don't know soccer, but I know dance. And so that's sort of where this narrative to keep tradition alive 
was accessed through dance. And so that's kind of where we start off, but we then get to this really revolutionary moment with the independence of Bangladesh. And that's what this new piece is going to be staged around. And do you remember his name? His name was Akram. Yep. So Akram is doing this new piece with his dance company who is in London, but then they're gonna be all of these Bengali dancers. And then of course COVID happens. And that also is just very interesting to see the grief and the loss around how dance is uniting this community. And then there are these experiences of not being able to follow through fully with what was planned. This one, I guess what really struck me about Akram was his ability to find trust in himself, being at home in his body. And I remember his mom, when he was stopping dance, was questioning him. And then she said, only he himself can know what his body is telling him. And so that was really profound there. That's only just like the tip of the iceberg, because I think the, again, the social message, right? Breaking down a lot of this, the oppression, right? Against people of color. And he experienced him and his father. I remember him talking about being in their restaurant and his father just saying, well, we have to, we have to eat. So I have to take this. And so there was a lot of anger in Akram that he then turned to contemporary dance to begin that exploration. And again, finding his heritage and paying homage to his culture. And we see that sort of um, evolution. Yes. One of the notes I wrote down that was striking to me was they talked about the dance being a living museum. I really appreciated that language, like living museum of trauma, tragedy, and celebration of telling stories, the memory and the body as an archive. And I thought that was a really powerful way of of describing what this traditional dance called Kathak was doing for him and his family and, and for the culture. He talked about limitation as often the best tutor. I also agree that the racism that they experienced at the restaurant brought up a lot of anger. And I remember him talking about how fatherhood when he became a dad himself is really where he shifted. It said move from, he he talked about being moved from being self-centered to sharing other stories. And then that's where he really got connected to that work around teaching dance for that reason. That's where the choreography really came alive. And again, finding so much more meaning than just steps but being able to uh, embody and encompass these narratives in maybe a a short dance piece, Mm -hmm. but that had so many layers and so many emotions and stories and yeah, just this whole arc and evolution. Yeah, I'm realizing with these episodes, one of the things that struck me from, from all five of them was how often it, they were addressing important human needs. And yeah. that is a conversation we have frequently at Opal is around how movement and human needs intersect. 
and how we can use movement beyond dance, any form of movement to meet our human needs. And that can be a way of, that can be a, a pathway into having more recovery and freedom is thinking about how our needs get met through movement versus just seeing movement as a means to change our body, to lose weight, to shape. If we can open our eyes or open the possibility to the ways that movement can meet our needs, that that can take us a step closer to freedom. And I think watching this docu-series could be a a way of opening up some possibility as as a watcher of it could be opening up, yeah, eyes and thoughts and options for how movement in any form can meet these needs. Yeah. And as I was watching, I think this idea of spirituality, which again is a extremely important human need. And Carol, we've talked about this even in some of our curriculum planning and just the way that for me personally, dance was this spiritual experience. And I think that it was hard to articulate because I'm thinking through this medium of of ballet. And when I saw all of these different forms of movement around the world with different bodies and just so much freedom and independence, it reminded me again of how important I believe spirituality is in recovery and kind of being able to see the body as connected to something larger and more than just the perfectionistic piece of trying to control. And so I think, again, yeah, that that was really important. And then the trust and the loyalty to your right. body, right? Like being able to tap into right. that. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think I'm thinking of the list. We, we oftentimes hand out a list of important human needs to the clients in our rethinking exercise and sport group and start to pursue that exploration around what needs have been met in the past, what needs are met currently, how has that shifted over time? And, you know, one of the ones that most people gloss over, for example, sexual expression. And here we go. I mean, that episode four with Kimiko, it really brought that human need alive in, in terms of that connection to movement, but certainly so many others. And like you're talking about with spiritual awareness, loyalty, connection to self, so many. So I could just go through that whole list and probably pick out points of that where it got demonstrated. So I would say as we get closer to wrapping up this episode, I would invite all of you listeners to consider watching this docu-series. And as you're doing so, paying attention to your own relationship with movement or sport or exercise and be thinking about ways that your perspective could be opened up, that you could think beyond what you've been thinking about in in that relationship to yourself and consider more expansive relationship. Is there anything you'd want to add, Josh? No, I mean, I really think that sort of that richness and the multifaceted nature of what movement can look like And I think I really loved this because it was highlighting dance. And I think another thing we often forget about is move or in movement is play, right? And sort of just connecting to fun and what our body is sort of craving, not what we're telling it to crave. And I think that, yeah, there were just so many opportunities to see that happening 
And I just feel a lot of hope. I do too. I think that I had so much energy right after I watched this docuseries. I, I talked to Josh afterwards and I just, I would say my, my energy was just kind of bursting out with <laughs> thinking of how much that this does bring to the conversation that's generative, that's life-giving, that's, that's not oppressive, that, and, and it's taking into account, I mean, there's a lot of themes of, of real oppression that are happening for these people's lives that are being featured. And, and yet amidst the different, very real oppressive dynamics and marginalized identities, these folks have found freedom. These folks have found ways of living a meaningful life and one that they are living in alignment with their values. I hope that Josh and I's conversation about MOVE might inspire you to watch the show. Our conversation does not replace the embodied experience of watching these passionate, soulful dancers who come from different races, different cultures, and different lived experiences. When I was in my 20s, I did a lot of mission work in other parts and cultures of the world. Those trips profoundly shaped my ability to see outside of my own narrow frame and opened up possibilities of the many ways that humans exist, celebrate, worship, and commune. I felt inspired watching each unique dancer on MOVE, and I hope it can crack open more possibilities for you and how movement can bring freedom and healing to your own life. Enjoy. Thank you to David Bozzi for editing, Camille Dodson for administrative support, and Aaron Davis for the Appetite's original music. See you next time.